Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 3rd, we're studying Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Jesus speaks plainly a third time concerning his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. Even as his disciples fail to understand, Jesus graciously continues to teach them the beautiful gospel that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Roy Askins. Pastor Askins serves as the managing editor for the Lutheran Witness, the official periodical of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Askins, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's good to be here. Pastor Askins, before we get started into our study, tell us a little bit about what's coming out in the Lutheran Witness. You mentioned the April edition. Maybe it has a little bit to do with what we're looking at today. Yeah, it's actually very exciting. So the April issue of the Lutheran Witness, uh, we're calling it Four Views on Jesus, and we have four well-respected uh, theologians writing about each of the Gospels and how these Gospels portray Jesus uh, in their own unique way. And uh, Pastor Peter Scares actually do, wrote the article for the Gospel of Mark, fantastic article. But then uh, Dr. Dr. Gibbs wrote on Matthew, I should say Dr. Scare uh, wrote on, on Mark, Dr. Gibbs wrote on Matthew, uh, Dr. Armbrust wrote on John, and then Dr. Just wrote on Luke. So each of these guys uh, have a wonderful specialty. And then we have uh, Dr. Ziegler pulling it all together and pointing out that even though there are four unique Gospels that portray Jesus in wonderful and unique ways, uh, there's still only one Jesus and one Gospel that we proclaim. So just a wonderful issue. Um, I encourage people to subscribe today. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe uh, and get your copy of The Lutheran Witness uh, so that you don't miss that April issue, uh, Four Views on Jesus. Fantastic. And and in April, we will just have finished the gospel according to St. Mark. And so it'll be a great way to to take a look at at how that lines up and all those mm-hmm. those wonderful things that God has given us with the four gospels. So again, check that out when April rolls around and subscribe to the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, we're looking at Mark chapter 10 today, beginning at verse 32. As we prepare to look at this particular text, what in the context will help us with these words? Sure. So this is the uh, third time that Jesus predicts his uh, death and resurrection. And it's important here to note that this is both a prediction of his death or a a prediction of both his death and his resurrection. Uh, It's not just simply predicting his death. Um, And this is the third time that he does this. Both Matthew or all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke report all three of these. And uh, this is the third time, and it happens just prior to the triumphal entry. So uh, Mark chapter 11, you have Jesus entering into Jerusalem uh, with palm branches and so forth, kind of the beginning of Holy Week there. Um, so this is right before he, he enters into Jerusalem. And so he's actually going up, literally going up into Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem as he's telling his disciples that he goes to Jerusalem, and as he goes, he's going to to suffer and die. So this is the, the third... Um, of these uh, these predictions, and you mentioned their predictions both of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Why, why do we need to make sure we get to the resurrection in these predictions? <laughs> yeah, so uh, here's the thing: um, the disciples in, in all of these predictions they don't get it; they don't understand what he's saying. Right? Um, I'm sure you guys have talked about these in your previous issues or previous art, um, uh, episodes of how the disciples don't seem to understand what Jesus is saying when he's talking about his death and resurrection. And even in the context here of what we're, we're studying, Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection. But what are the apostles looking for? They're like jockeying for position as though this is, you know, this is going to be a great worldly success, right? And they're going to want to sit at the right and the left hand of, of him in his glory, right? And they're, they're thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom and, and earthly rule. They're not getting what he's saying about his death and resurrection. And it's not until the resurrection that they understand and that they see, right? What, what happens after he dies before the resurrection? Well, they're all hiding in, in, their, uh, in, their, uh, in the upper room. They're hiding in their rooms. They're not actually going out 
to to proclaim the message. It's not after until after the resurrection that they see who this is, who Jesus is, and why this had to happen. And even Saint Paul says this right in First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. Right, um, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say or how can you say there's no resurrection? He goes on, if Christ has not been raised, uh, then our hope is in vain. Right, uh, we do not have any hope. We are of most people to be most pitied. Uh, he says, uh, Saint Paul says if Christ has not been raised. And so it is this resurrection prediction that is key too, that they should have been looking for this. And in fact, we're not looking for this. Uh, they were actually still surprised by it. Yeah. I mean, and we've seen this, as you said, throughout the gospel of Mark, and even right here in this particular section, it's a bit of a transition in Mark from that mm-hmm. Galilean ministry that dominated the first part. And then, as you said, in chapter 11, when he enters into Jerusalem, this section here in the middle, kind of the end of chapter eight, through the end of chapter 10, Jesus is really hammering home to his disciples. As you said, this is the third time now that he's talking about his death and resurrection. It just goes over their heads every time. And mm-hmm. and you see that, you know, they don't understand it from a from a doctrinal perspective, and they don't understand it from a, a Christian living perspective either, what that means for their life. And we're going to see that again today in the way that the, the conversation turns right after Jesus has talked about his death and resurrection. Here they are again, worried about who's <laughs> the greatest. And and I think as we have that conversation about this text, we're going to see, you know, it's easy for us to look down on the disciples and be like, come on guys, why didn't you get it? Well, we still struggle with these same things, even after the resurrection of our Lord, these same kinds of conversations about who's the greatest, these sinful struggles that we have, they continue. And so the the text is going to be very important for us still today. Any more introductory material, Pastor Askins, before we get started? No, I don't have any uh, other introductory material. I think that covers it pretty well. I think we can move right on into the text uh, at verse 32. All right. So we are in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant in James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." That is our text for today, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. So, Pastor Askins, before we get to that actual passion prediction of Jesus, there's a little bit of setting the scene that Mark gives us. He says they were on the road. This this struck me as I was reading it because it seems every time Jesus is doing teaching like this, Mark reminds us they were on the way or they're on the road. Why Why is that an important thing to notice? Well, I believe in Mark, it often, it's indicating a change of scenery, change of direction, kind of a change in the overall uh, direction of the gospel itself, right? So they're on the road, they're going up to Jerusalem where he's going to enter uh, into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And it's just a, a huge change in the overall direction of the gospel itself, right? Indicating, you know, something else is going to be happening, kind of a kind of an outline marker, we might say. Today, uh, in the Lutheran Witness, I might use a subhead to do this, right? And this is kind of one of the ways that Mark is, is indicating, okay, there's some change going on. But as this happens, uh, as you mentioned, of course, Jesus was is teaching. Now, the the idea behind this is that also 
as this teaching is going on, what is God doing, right? God, Jesus, Son of God, what is he doing? Well, he's teaching, he's leading his people as he teaches, right? And we see this in a couple of different places, obviously, throughout the scriptures. But you see it particularly uh, in Isaiah, a couple passages in Isaiah um, help us kind of understand this, right? Uh, What does God say in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16? And I will lead the blind in the way they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough place, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. Right, um, and other passages also in Isaiah where God is responsible for leading His people, uh, guiding them as they go on their way. And that's exactly what we see here: Jesus leading the disciples, and well, actually, the kind of these two groups. Right, you see two groups here: um, the disciples, the the inner twelve, the apostles, and then these other other disciples and followers of Jesus who are there along with Him. Now, those two groups, Mark tells us, were amazed and afraid. Mark often gives us these emotion words. He does it particularly with Jesus, and we get at the disciples too. Why those two emotions here, do you think? I, I don't know. You know, we can give these some other thoughts uh, and just kind of reflect on this. I'm not entirely sure why we do these. One of them, I wonder, is, um, you know, they... they and Mark doesn't make a big deal about this in his gospel, I don't think. Maybe not quite in the way that some of the other gospels do. But they're going up to Jerusalem. They know the general tenor of what's what's going to uh, happen in some way, right? Um, it, it, I forget which gospel where one of the apostles says, well, let's go up to Jerusalem and die with him, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of know that Jerusalem is a hostile place for Jesus to be because the scribes and the Pharisees are there and they have it out for Jesus. And so I think maybe that that answers some of the fear, right? Maybe the the followers of Jesus, not the inner 12, but the followers of Jesus are, are kind of afraid of what's going to happen to Jesus as he goes up to Jerusalem. But you have this amazement, and I think actually Dr. Veltz translates it as excitement, which I thought was an interesting translation. Um, But he translates it as uh, the 12 are actually excited to go up to Jerusalem because they think uh, perhaps they have this one, once again, these visions of grandeur, what's going to happen in Jerusalem. This is Jesus going to, you know, uh, uh, win a political earthly kingdom, right? Something along those lines. Um, So they're kind of amazed and excited as they go up perhaps. Um, But uh, that's kind of what I was thinking. I don't know. Did you have any other, any uh, insights from previous uh, episodes that might help us with that? Well, with the very previous text, you know, Jesus has just had that conversation with the rich young man, and that rich young man ended up going away sad. Mm-hmm. And you get the the sense as the conversation between Jesus and his disciples continues after that that the disciples are almost like, "Well, Jesus, why did why did you send him away? What what was wrong with him?" There's that they're surprised. You know, right. Peter even asks, "Who?" Or I guess they all say this, and Peter's the one that says about you know, like who can be saved if if a rich guy can't be saved if he's not going to stick with us? Who who can? And so I, I wonder if if maybe some of that uh, afraid you know fear and amazement or excitement maybe stems from from that part of the the conversation as well. But you know, I mean, again, the it's almost like a. Again, with the, the disciples and even the crowds, mm-hmm. they never quite grasp this when it comes to Jesus and everything that's going on. And so to see some mixture of emotion, I think, you know, yeah. it, it makes sense. It fits with what Mark's doing. Yeah. Whatever is going on exactly with those two emotions, Jesus is going to do, attempt to clear it up with some very clear teaching. And so, as you said, this is the third passion prediction now. Mm-hmm. And each one gives us more information. And this one seems to be the most detailed of the three. Take us into some of the specifics that Jesus gives here. Sure. So the the text says, uh, taking the 12, so he takes them presumably away from the rest of the followers and and tells them what's going to happen. And he says, uh, he kind of just lays this out section by section. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, literally going up. So they were coming up from the Jordan Valley, which is below sea level, up to Jerusalem, which is about 2,500 feet above sea level, right? So we're literally going up to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be delivered over to to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then after three days, he will rise, right? And this is almost, uh, you you can follow through the Gospel of Mark, and this happens almost phrase by phrase through the Gospel of Mark uh, in in the actual passion, uh, suffering and passion, or the passion account uh, of Jesus in Mark. So, you know, he's delivered over to, uh, by by uh, Judas and the crowd in Mark chapter 14, verse 42 and 44. Uh, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes, and that's in Mark 14, verse 53. The chief priests and scribes kind of being his chief opponents, chief 
antagonists in the Gospel of Mark. Um, he's condemned to death by them, right? In in Mark fourteen verse sixty four. Eventually, he's handed over to the Gentiles, right? Handed over to Pilate because the chief priests and the scribes can't kill him themselves. So he's handed over in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Um, he's mocked, of course, but the robe is put on him. The crown of thorns is put on him. They kneel down and they mock him, right? At the same time, they're spitting upon him. Uh, he's also scourged, which happens both after he's mocked. They put the crown of thorns on him and they're hitting him. Uh, but then he's he's actually before that. He's actually scourged, which is a common practice before crucifixion. They would scourge those who were going to be crucified. And then, of course, they kill him by crucifixion, which happens uh, on the, put on the cross in 15 verse 25 and then actually dies in verse 37. And then, of so, course, keep going. You keep have, going. Uh, yeah. Then, of course, you have the resurrection in Mark chapter sixteen, verse six. The young man reports that Jesus is not here, and then later on in verse nine, twelve, and fourteen of, of verse sixteen, you have Jesus himself there uh, in the resurrection as well. Right. So everything that Jesus says actually comes to pass, which mm-hmm. is a you know, I mean, just a rather stunning thing. We reflected on this a little bit when we talked about the second passion prediction, mm-hmm. the first time that Jesus talks about the Son of Man being delivered over, that on the one hand, you know, these things are are done to Jesus. Judas betrays him, the mm-hmm. chief priest, the scribes, they do these things. And yet he goes there willingly. He knows what's going to happen. And I, I think this is the first time that Jesus specifically mentions Jerusalem as the place where it's going to happen. You know, he tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and this is why. And it, it just, it strikes me, you know, Jesus, that doesn't stop Jesus from going. He goes willingly. He goes gladly. I think of the the Paul Gerhardt hymn, a lamb goes uncomplaining, uncomplaining. for, you yeah. know, um, and it's just a marvelous thing to see, I think. Yeah, and and he he really gives, he, as you mentioned too, he really fleshes it out here in this one. I mean, if you look at the previous uh, uh, passion predictions in eight verse thirty one to thirty two, chapter eight verse thirty one thirty two, he just simply t- it's actually mostly against the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, right? They mostly talking about what they're going to do to him, and then in chapter nine verse um, verse thirty, uh, it's mostly about. Um, Let's see, it says here, the Son of Man would be delivered in the hands of men, right? So even kind of taking it out of the context of the Jews. So both the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be involved here. But then in terms of the full details, the full details occur here in this third passion prediction. And like you said, even though he knows the whole world is arrayed against him, the Jews, the Gentiles, all the nations are what they're going to do to him. He continues on uh, knowing that uh, knowing what comes, what's coming. Beautiful right. passage. Oh, very. And and I think then that, that, you know, knowing what's coming really helps as we think about the close of the of the whole text we've got today, where Jesus talks about what he's going to do, what it means for him to come to serve, that that plays into it. So again, the third time Jesus has laid out for his disciples his suffering, death, and resurrection. He's done so now in more detail than he has the previous two times. And here come the disciples yet again with a chance to get it, <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> no, come um, all these disciples. I know, I do, I do. Every time, every time we talk about this, you know, it's just a, it is a, a wonderful comfort to see how how these men who are right there with Jesus that that they didn't get it, so that when I don't get it today, yes. you know, I, I I get to see my Lord's own patience with me, yes. and and being kind and and continuing to teach. Well, this is the wonderful thing about Mark. I mean, this is one of the themes in Mark. I'm sure you've touched on this, but the disciples are always screwing up in the gospel of Mark, right. right? They never figure it out until the very end. And, uh, and, and this is the, one of the beautiful things about Mark, right? There's hope even for me, right? Uh, and, uh, and these disciples don't get it. Sometimes I struggle too, and yet God continues to, uh, Jesus continues to be loving and gracious with them and bring them along. It's beautiful. Mm. It really is. And it, and what's, what's even perhaps more striking, particularly in this middle section, in those disciples who speak up, it, it's the inner three that, that often fall flat on their faces. You know, Mm -hmm. Peter, after the first passion prediction, he was the one that tried to rebuke Jesus. We've had Mm -hmm. John speak up earlier concerning someone who wasn't a part of the the inner 12 and was casting out demons and he Mm -hmm. spoke up not really knowing. And here we've got James and John again. So it's, you know, it's not like, oh, Thaddeus is the one who's, who's being singled (laughs) out or or Judas son of James that, you know, nobody, nobody knows these, these disciples. It's the ones that we know their names. They're the ones that are messing up. And and so, I mean, we've got James and John here. And and as we reflect on, on those two, they're the sons of Zebedee. Uh, perhaps before we talk a little bit about them, it might be a place where we can think about, we're talking about with that ep, uh, 
issue. You have issues with Lutheran Witness. I have episodes of Sharper Iron. Yes. With the April issue of the Lutheran Witness Mm -hmm. and the four gospel accounts, this is one that we know from Matthew as well. And Matthew talks about the mother of James and John. So perhaps this is an opportunity for us to just consider how we, we put those two texts together, the way Matthew tells it and the way Mark tells it. Sure. So in the in the Matthew account, um, uh, the mother of James and John actually asks Jesus uh, if her sons can sit on his right and his left hand. Uh, and of course, here, Mark reports this as James and John ask, asking. And I think uh, either way, I, I wonder if perhaps, and once again, I don't know, I don't have any exegetical or textual proof for this. I haven't gone and studied it this deeply, but I wonder if perhaps behind the idea of their mother asking is really James and John wondering if Jesus is going to be more accommodating to their mother asking, right? It's harder to tell a mother no, right, than it is to tell <laughs> than to tell James and John. And so they ask their mother, perhaps, will you go ask Jesus uh, uh, if this is the case? Regardless, either way, um, of course, this is the way it happens, but it is James and John behind the uh, this text, behind this idea saying, we're looking for the seats of honor at Jesus' right and left hand. And I think that's the key point here, is that uh, whether it's them asking through their mother or them asking Jesus directly, either way, it's James and John asking for this position of honor um, uh, at at Jesus' right and left hand. At least honor as they see it, glory as they see it, right? This earthly glory, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just holding those two texts together, it makes a lot of sense to think that, okay, the mother was the one that went and asked. Mark doesn't give us that detail because as you said, it is James and John who are behind yes. the request. Exactly. And so to to highlight, as he's been doing throughout, to highlight how the disciples themselves fail to understand. Now, uh, James and John, Mark calls them the sons of Zebedee. We've seen them previously in the list of the disciples, we know they're a part of this inner circle. Just tell us a little bit about these two men. Right. So they first appear in Mark chapter one, verse 19, uh, as you say, mending the nets. Um, they're later called the sons of thunder in Mark chapter three, verse 17. I didn't dig into this more. I was wondering, do you, did you, when you guys studied that passage, did you dig into the sons of thunder at all and where that comes from? I, I, my memory escapes me right ah. now, but I think, I mean, from, from what I recall, a lot of times it gets associated with some of what John says back in chapter nine of Mark, where he's talking about the the one who wasn't a part of them, who's casting out demons. Mm-hmm. And is it in, I think it's in Luke, where you have James and John who who maybe right. want to call fire down on, yeah, a, yeah. on a village that didn't accept Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, I think, I think that's what I've always associated, the Sons of Thunder, that title, they're sort of a... Oh, how do you, how do you want to say it? They're, they're, they're ready to, ready to go They're I mean, we, we think of Peter as being very impetuous, but right. it seems like James and John, they're, <laughs> they're ready to drop the hammer too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the, that, this is their, their, their moniker, right? Uh, Sons of Thunder. Um, but then they're also all throughout the gospel of Mark, a part of the inner circle, even of the 12, right? So they're the, the part of the group of three that goes with Jesus and the healing of Jairus' daughter. They witness the transfiguration. They're with Peter as he as uh, Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they belong not simply to the you know 12, but as we were talking about earlier, even this inner circle of the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, that are always showing up with Jesus in a special way. Now, before they actually say what it is they want, they come to Jesus like this, teacher, (laughs) we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, which I mean, I don't know if one of my sons has ever asked me that, but if I did, or if they did, hold on a second, let's, let's find out a little bit more. What? I I was going to say, any parent knows that trick. Any parent knows that this is, you know, you're getting set up here, right? (laughs) Right. So, so what are, I mean, where does that come from? Why did, why is that their, their opening gambit? Um, I think so on the one hand, it's quick. It's e- once again, as we talked about, it's easier for us to criticize them and like the crazy things they're doing. But in other ways, Jesus does actually encourage such thinking and language, right? Consider Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says very boldly, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you, right? Um, and then even uh, later on in Mark chapter 11, there's a parallel here. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I mean, it's entirely possible that James and John were coming with this boldness. I mean, we even think about this when we, when we uh, Luther's explanation to the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, right? Uh, ask with all boldness and confidence as a dear child will ask their dear father. Um, as, a, as a father, my children come up to me and ask all sorts of crazy questions 
for all sorts of crazy things, right? And they're just bold and confident in their asking. And so there is a sense, I think we have to, to understand this a bit, that maybe they're coming with this boldness and confidence. But I, I also think that, you know, as we're going to get into later, they're misunderstanding, obviously they're misunderstanding uh, what's going to be happening here in Jerusalem in a few days. Mm, right. And I, I appreciate that because it is very easy for us to to just view the disciples completely negatively. It's helpful to see where they're coming from. And, and as you're talking there and, and connecting this to what Jesus says elsewhere about prayer, I'm reminded that previously in Mark chapter nine, after they fail to cast out that demon and they yeah. ask Jesus about it, you know, he tells them this kind can't be cast out except by prayer. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to predict his death and resurrection the second time. And Mark tells us at that time, they didn't understand it and they were afraid to ask him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is, there's been a reticence, at least at some points, for his disciples to come to him and ask. Here, at least James and John are addressing Jesus. And as you said, addressing confidently. And, and the question will become then, well, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're asking for? Are you asking for those great gifts that God has for you in the Lord's Prayer? Or are you asking something else? And we'll we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We got Pastor Roy Askins looking at Mark chapter 10. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 3rd. We're studying Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. We have Pastor Roy Askins with us. He is the managing editor for the Lutheran Witness, the official periodical of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Askins, prior to the break, we were talking about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They come with this bold request of Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask. And trying to put that in the context, Jesus has told them to ask, seek, knock. So Jesus, though, is not going to do perhaps what a a parent in, in foolishness might fail to do. He he's not going to say yes or no yet till he actually finds out. And the way that he responds, he said to them, "What do you want me to do for you?" Now, on the one hand, that is just that's a good thing to do. Find out what it is before you agree, say yes or no. But maybe there's a, a bit more and a moment for reflection when Jesus asks, "What do you want me to do for you?" Where can we go with that? Yeah. So at first I I was looking at this and I was like, ah, I got nothing to say about this. Let's move on to the next verse. And then I got to thinking, how would I answer that question? If Jesus came to me and said, what do you want me to do for you? What would I say? Now, of course, you know, the, the, you know, pious Christian Sunday school answer is, you know, die for my sins. Right. But as I reflect on that, of course, that's that's what we want, right? We want him to redeem us from our, our sins and transgressions. Uh, that's obvious. But I have to struggle. I struggle with this sometimes. And I think uh, many Christians do as we think about the idols that we struggle with, the things that, that we would want. Like, I mean, just imagine Jesus, God of all creation, comes to you and says, what would you want me to do for you? You could say, forgive my sins. You could also say, well, I'm an easy life without difficulty or strife, right? Or maybe, maybe it's, uh, you know, my life's been good, but I really want my children to be provided for. Give them a good career so that they can live a better life uh, than I have lived. And here's an opportunity for us to reflect on what do we really expect God to do for us, right? What really occupies our minds and thoughts? What most do we want, right? Do we want to live and understand God's will more deeply? Do we want to be deep, more deeply involved in God's word? Do we uh, structure our days and weeks and months around uh, who God is and what he's done for us? Or am I structuring my life around having a bigger house, having uh, a better car, uh, a more luxurious retirement, right? Um, what is really occupying my thoughts and, and, and goals here? 
And and I think here uh, an important we need to make kind of an important distinction here. God does in fact provide for our needs of body and soul. Right? He promises to do so. Um, he's the giver of every good gift. He does provide these first article gifts, but he provides these things so that we don't actually have to worry about such things. Right? And going back to Matthew here, I'm sorry for keep going back to Matthew, but I'm a kind of a Matthew guy, right? Matthew <laughs> chapter six, right? Do not be anxious about your life, which incidentally is actually the upcoming May theme for this year. Uh, you know, seek first the kingdom, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God. Um, he gives, God's going to provide all of these things for you so that you don't have to worry about them, right? Uh, the primary, that's not the primary thing that he does for us though, right? The primary gift he gives is his life, uh, suffering life, life, suffering and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins that we might be his children. So uh, it's a really kind of a fascinating question to think about, you know, what do you want me to do for you? Right. I'm sure you see similar things uh, in the parish there, Pastor Apple. Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of times when we think about our prayers, our prayer requests do often revolve around fourth petition needs. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray mm-hmm. for the health of our loved ones. We pray for, I mean, all, all of those, those things that deal with the needs of this body and life, those are the ones that very often show up on the prayer list. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like They're you good. said. Like we should ask these things, right? Exactly. They're in the Lord's prayer. That's right. That's right. Give us this daily daily bread. God wants to give us daily bread and we should ask for it. Mm-hmm. But that's not all we should ask for. Mm-hmm. I, I think, is it in the in the large catechism where Luther talks about God just opening up his, his treasures for us in the Lord's prayer? And, mm-hmm. and if we limit ourselves to the fourth petition without praying, you know, the first, second, and third, which do come before the fourth, how much are we going to miss? Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, here in, in Mark chapter 10, what is what is striking is that what has Jesus just promised? He's just promised that he's going to go to Jerusalem mm-hmm. to suffer, to die, to rise. And I mean, if that's his promise, then that is what we should pray for. We should always pray for those things that he's promised to give. And and here James and John, and again, not to be too harsh on them, but mm-hmm. to recognize that that seems to have gone over their head. They don't think to ask for those things that Jesus has just promised. And and as I, I mean, as I'm reflecting on how I know, you know, what Jesus is going to say, like, and I don't think I would have asked this either, but like Jesus is going to tell them, you're going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Yeah. You're going to be baptized. Like, how many of us ever have asked Jesus, please give me suffering? And I don't, I'm not saying that, I'm not sure that I should, I know I should rejoice in my suffering, but, but I mean, it's just, uh, when you put it in the context, like what they end up asking for is like, oh, you guys, you just, you missed it. (laughs) You totally missed the boat on this one. (laughs) But that's exactly, that's exactly what he moves into uh, there, there in the next, um, the next verse, actually later on in, I think verse 38, right? Uh, Right, right. I mean, I'm just trying to, you know. Putting putting these things together, you know, like man, what what should they have asked for at the moment? What what is that thing that that they would have come to Jesus had they understood? You know, I mean, maybe yeah. it is those petitions of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, I mean, right, right. knowing that that this is what awaits Jesus, surely it's going to await those who follow Jesus, and He's already talked about picking up their cross and following Him. To you know, sustain us through this, Lord, help us to bear our cross and follow you. Rather, they ask for something that seems at the right. entire opposite end of the spectrum. What they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What are they asking for? So yeah, they're they're thinking here in terms of uh, earthly kingdoms and earthly glory, right? Um, Jesus is announcing the growing up to, to Jerusalem. Um, I guess they just completely skip over the whole um, suffering. In fact, this happens all three passion predictions. It's really fascinating. Um, this happens in all three of them where Jesus predicts his death and re- resurrection. And then in the first one, in Mark chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus for doing that, right? Obviously, the, such death is not going to happen to you. Uh, in the the uh, uh, second passion prediction in, in Mark chapter 9, they start quibbling over who's the greatest, right? So it's like the exact same thing, right? Here you have Peter, James, and John uh, asking for seats of, of glory and, 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 and honor uh, at Jesus' right and left hand uh, in his kingdom. Right 
after he, he's predicted his death and resurrection. So they must be thinking in some way that, that Jesus doesn't really mean he's going to physically die or something. Um, but this is, this is uh, some, uh, in some way, Jesus is talking about his, his, uh, his political uh, and earthly power, right? So when they're talking here about this glory, this, this idea of glory occurs in a couple other places, only two other places, I should say, uh, in Mark. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, um, and uh, here Jesus talks about uh, whoever is ashamed of me, he says, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that's kind of the first one, his return um, on the last day to judge the world. And then Mark chapter 13, verse 26, right, which is the same uh, context here, right? Um, start, he's talking about the end time, stars falling, Son of Man coming in the, in the clouds with great glory. Um, but Jesus's warning here um, uh, is that, uh, well, I, I'm sorry, let me, let me move away from Jesus' warning and think more in terms of uh, our place as Christians and how we're tempted to want similar things, right? How we're tempted to think that the Christian life is one of, of glory, right? For, for example, how many Christians think that because you're a Christian, God's going to provide for you in a special way? Uh, lest you suffer greatly, right? And it, this is a real temptation for those of us in America here to think that, you know, this is a Christian nation and because it's quote unquote a Christian nation, God has blessed us in some way. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a former missionary. I've traveled all over Asia. I can say that there are Christians all over the world and some of them in great suffering, right? And great need. And it's not because uh, they've done something wrong that God is not blessing them with, uh, with, uh, uh, earthly and physical wealth, right? Um, this is a consequence of this sinful idea that because we're doing something good, God's going to glorify us in some way. And so we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as James and John and think that um, because I go to church every Sunday, because I do devotions with my kids, God's going to grant me special uh, dispensation here on earth to be happier and and have less pain and suffering, right? In fact, as he says in the the uh, the first passion prediction, right, or afterward first passion prediction, the Christian life is one of suffering. Take up your cross and follow me, he says, right after he talks about suffering and dying on the cross. Um, and so this is the idea that James and John come with this glory that that they would have kingdoms uh, positions of glory at his right and left hand uh, when he comes into this earthly kingdom that they're anticipating. You know, and again, to try to put James and John in their in their context, previously in the the last text where Jesus has sent the rich young man away or the rich young man left, and Peter, you know, speaks up. Well, Jesus, we we did leave everything and we followed you. Right. Jesus talks about receiving now in this time a hundredfold houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and so forth. But then he also adds with persecutions. With persecutions, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And and it does seem that, that James and John have missed that part. And again, they've, they've missed it in what Jesus said to them. They've missed it in what's going to happen to Jesus himself. And and they're thinking about glory. When I think of the, the term glory, that I usually go to the gospel of John. That's mm-hmm. the way Jesus will talk in John's gospel about his, his own death. Mm-hmm. And it's in John chapter 12 where John makes the comment that the the people loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And it seems that James and John have a, a similar misunderstanding here. So Jesus is going to teach as he has been doing his disciples and their misunderstanding. He's going to teach yet again. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And then he, he uses some some language that needs some unpacking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Take us into those two images that Jesus uses. Yes. The cup and the, and the baptism here. Uh, you had, a, I want to back up and mention gr- briefly. Uh, I always go to John when I speak of the glory of God too, but Dr. Veltz does a great job of actually explaining uh, the glory of God also here in Mark and sees Mark uh, the, that uh, the glory of Jesus occurs in his cross in Mark as well, which is a new insight I hadn't come into until I was kind of preparing for this study today, which I thought was really wonderful. But then, of course, he talks about, he moves into this idea of the cup and the baptism and what these indicate and what they mean for Jesus' uh, ministry here. So in the Old Testament, uh, you have uh, the cup all throughout the Old Testament, um, and it uh, indicates a portion, an allotment uh, that comes from God. So in, in a positive sense, you have passages like Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, you hold my lot, right? Um, but there's also uh, a, a sense in the Old Testament of the cup as a cup of punishment, a cup of wrath. 
Jesus is offered to drink several times, drinks several times on the the cross. Well, uh, he is drinking in his death on the cross, the full uh, cup of God's wrath as he suffers and dies there. And of course, we see this in the Old Testament as well. A great passage uh, from one of my favorite books of the Bible, Ezekiel, uh, talks about uh, this idea of cup. Ezekiel chapter 23, God is actually condemning uh, the the uh, the Jerusalem and, and the kingdom of Judah. And he says uh, to her, he says, you have gone the way of your sister, right? So her sister is the, the northern kingdom. He's talking to southern kingdom. You've gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord of God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision for it contains much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and not shards and tear your breasts. Right. I mean, just this, this image of, of, of horror and desolation and, and drinking this, this full cups of God's wrath and, and, and punishment. Well, Jesus does this also. This is the cup he comes to drink is the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. And he drains it to the dregs that he might give to us in a new cup forgiveness of sins, that is his body and blood shed for us on the cross in the Lord's Supper, right? So now the cup that he gives me, he drank God's wrath from the cup. Now he gives me a new cup that contains nothing but forgiveness and life and salvation, a beautiful cup uh, filled with his blood. So that's kind of the idea of cup and kind of the, the cup of God's wrath. Uh, but then baptism is a related term. As as we know, as, as Christians, we are baptized, right? It literally means in the Greek to wash, but Jesus imbues it with an additional meaning here um, that, that he is going to be, or the additional meaning that indicates his death, right? He's going to be um, uh, washed into a death in some sense, which of course brings us straight into Romans, right? Romans chapter six, uh, being baptized with Jesus means we are baptized into his death and therefore also his life. So all of those kind of things come come together there in that language of cup and baptism. Now, John and James hear Jesus say this. They say with seeming confidence, we, we can do that, <laughs> Jesus. We're able. We can do that. <laughs> and, and, that's right. And, and you kind of wonder if, if they, they still maybe don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Jesus is going to open the, their minds at least a little bit or give them something to hold on to and says, you are going to drink this cup. You are going to receive this baptism. It, it, you mentioned, Pastor Askins, that you know when we drink the cup in the Lord's Supper, we're receiving the forgiveness, not wrath or, or mm-hmm. death. And when we are baptized into Christ's death, but also in his resurrection, when Jesus talks about James and John drinking the same cup and being baptized with the same baptism. Is he talking about like sacramental like that? Or is he talking about martyrdom? I think he's talking about it uh, as in terms of martyrdom, right? Which is what happens uh, in large context with all, almost all the well, all the disciples, but uh, of course, John, right? So he promises uh, they will receive the cup. He receives the cup of, uh, of suffering and, and sorrow uh, on account of their confession of Jesus's name. Uh, and uh, baptism into a martyr's death as well, which is what happens exactly with James in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, Herod, it says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So uh, James was... Uh, was killed there. John also, um, even though he, uh, it's not believed that he suffered a martyr's death, um, he was sent to the island of Patmos, which evidently was a place where the Romans had mines. He was probably sent there as a slave and suffered probably greatly working there in the mines. Uh, but that's also where he received a vision that became the book of, or the, the vision of the book of Revelation that he writes down the book of Revelation for us. Um, but, uh, but, as for you know who gets to sit on his right and left hand, that's not for 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 the disciple for for Jesus' side. That's already been prepared. But they will drink the cup that he drank, uh, that is suffering and death, uh, for the sake of Christ's name. What about those two places? The place yeah. at Jesus' right, the place at his left that he doesn't get to grant. It has been prepared for someone. What is what's he saying there? Well, let me ask you what when when you have always interpreted this in the past. I th- this honestly, I, you know. I probably should have spent more time studying this in seminary. But uh, what I came across today actually surprised me. How did you always understand this passage of who was prepared for the right and left hand? Well, I, I think the the way that it most naturally reads, you know, thinking what Jesus or what John and James have asked for, the places that Jesus right and left mm-hmm. would seem to be thinking in the same lines of 
like when we say in the creed that Jesus sits at God's right hand, mm-hmm. sort of a, a position of power and authority mm-hmm. is, is I think the most natural way to read it, at least on the surface. But I, I think I know where you're going with this. And I think you're right. <laughs> well, and so, so I always thought in the sense of not actually, I, I never even understood it that way. I was always thought uh, I went to Matthew 25, sheep and goats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, left hand is prepared for uh, damnation. The goats left right hand prepared for the sheep. Uh, who who go with him into paradise, um, but I I came across this this uh, one idea uh, once again also from Doctor Veltz um, that uh, it's actually prepared for the robbers right one on his right and one on his left hand the language is actually identical in both places right that Jesus is saying look this has already been prepared there are going to be two people who are crucified on either side with me and it is these two robbers one on his right and one on his left, right? Which also then further explains his comments on glory because he is then, this is his moment of glory, right? There are two who are already there on his right and left hand in glory as he's dying on the cross. You know, once again, I always have gone to John for talking about Jesus and his glorification. And I've always seen that as John's point that Jesus' glory occurs in the crucifix. But I think that Mark is saying the same thing here, that the moment of Jesus' glory which is totally contradictory to our minds, right? But the moment of Jesus' glory occurs as he's hanging in death, dying here on the cross. Yeah, and I, I don't remember who it was that pointed that out to me the first time, but but when they did, it was like, whoa, I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it, it does fit with what John does, and it's, it's Mark doing it as well, mm-hmm. that for Jesus to be in his glory is for him to reign with his forgiveness from the cross, where he drinks the cup of wrath that we deserved so that he can give us the cup of his blessing in the in the supper. It's fantastic. It really is. Now, Jesus has the other 10 who are, who are sitting by. <laughs> They've heard all of this and they become indignant at James and John. And I, I don't think they're indignant because they were upset James and John got it so wrong. <laughs> because James and John got there first. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so they become indignant. The other 10 do, which Jesus is going to take as a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. And, and he's going to talk about what it actually means to be great in the kingdom of God with himself as example. And just as a heads up, we got about six minutes here, Pastor Askins, to, to talk through this. Okay. So what is, as Jesus starts, he says, look, this is the way it works with the Gentiles. What, what's he saying? Well, I mean, obviously the Gentiles, uh, we think back to the, the these uh, Roman times, Gentiles, and you have a Caesar, and what does Caesar do, right? He rules by fiat, you know, the king, the, whoever rules by fiat, he rules over them, he has this authority over them and just, you know, forces his will on them, right? Um, but it's honestly, in some ways, uh, as we think about this, not even, not as much different from our current lives today. Uh, as well. I mean, imagine, for instance, the office politics that go into fighting for promotions or, you know, rising up through the, through the company ranks to become, a, to receive a place of honor. How do you do this? Well, you don't do it by being meek and mild, right? If you want a promotion, you got to go into your boss and show him why you're so important and why you're the guy he needs, right? Um, and so that's one sense of this that, that we can probably uh, connect a little bit to. I think this is the, what we need to be careful about is when this takes place in the church, which is, of course, where Jesus is going for going for here. Um, in the church, this is not how we ru- how the church rules, right? We don't rule by lording it over each other, but by following the example of Jesus Christ, who, as he's going to get to at the end of the passage, came not to be served, but to serve and to give us life as a ransom for many. So the way that it is among the Gentiles, the way that our natural inclination is, is to try to put ourselves one rung on the ladder higher than the other guy. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, that's not the way it should be among you. Instead, he says, whoever would be great must be servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. It's pretty strong language. What is Jesus saying there? Yeah. So he uses two terms here. He, he actually starts with servant, and, and that's actually the, the Greek word diakonos, from which we get uh, deacon and deaconess, right? So uh, one who serves, but then he intensifies it and moves in verse 44 to slave, doulos. Uh, you must be a slave. And, uh, and here's the thing. Um, if we're here in the church— as brothers and sisters in Christ, as pastor and people, uh, we live by service to each other and actually truly, truly serving one another, right? Um, you know, 
when Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, he's not saying, well, strive to be first, right? By putting on a good fake show of humility, right? And, and pretending to serve others, but really you're just doing it to become first. No, he's really speaking here of what it means to be a child of God and as the child of God, uh, living in service to one another, living in service to each other as as the people of God, right? And and I think here of, uh, you know, the burning coals passage. This was, you know, as a young child growing up, totally misunderstanding this passage, you know, where you're syrupy sweet to somebody that can't stand you just to, you know, have the chance to dump burning coals on their heads, right? <laughs> totally missing the point, right? This is not the point that you become first by doing fake humility and fake service, but actually as the child of God, as children of God, we desire to serve uh, one another. We desire to serve um, uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith because that's who we are, right? This is how we live among each other. And that that if we're finding ourselves in a place where we're trying to put ourselves up, especially in the congregation, right? You know, seeking for places of honor and trying to get authority in the congregation, then we really need to stop and reflect on what it is that we're we're going for, and and who it is that we're in fact serving. Mm. Jesus then concludes by bringing out who he is and, and what he's here to do. And I think not simply as an example, certainly he does set an example in this, but even more importantly, as Savior. So verse 45, Mark 10, 45, one of the most important verses in the gospel, I would say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pastor Askins, with just about two minutes here, take us into that verse, help wrap <laughs> things up this morning, give us the goods. Two minutes, uh, two minutes for the uh, key the verse most important of the entire verse. That's right. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> one of the most important verses in all the, the book of, of Mark, right? Um, so I think this really is kind of the key verse. Obviously, explains the 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 passage, you know, uh, whoever would be a first among you must be a servant. Uh, obviously, it's kind of a key there. Um, but it's really the key for what Jesus comes to do, right? He's not here for political uh, ransom or political liberation. He's not here to uh, take over the world. Uh, if you think about what he's done in his whole life, he's not speaking against fortresses and Rome, right? Who is he speaking against? He's speaking against the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not cleansing the fortress, uh, the garrison of soldiers there in Jerusalem. He's cleansing the temple, right? What does he come to do? He comes to free the people from their sins, from their bondage to Satan, right? Hence the, the passage in Mark chapter three, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man that he may plunder his house. This is precisely what Jesus comes to do, the son of man comes to do, to bind Satan that he might plunder from Satan's house all of Satan's goods, that is, uh, those who are enthralled to sin and, and his and Satan, right? And so this is precisely what Jesus comes to do. To, not to be served, but to serve. And he serves by giving his life as your ransom that you might not be bound to your sin any longer, that you might have declared over you, your sins are forgiven. You are my child. Pastor Roy Askins is the managing editor for the Lutheran Witness, the official periodical of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Pastor Askins, thanks for being our guest this morning. Pastor Apple, it's good to be here again. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have questions about Mark chapter 10 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.